We continue a sermon series called Unstoppable God, and I appreciate uh, Dustin filling in for Pastor Justin today. We're kind of giving Pastor Justin a day off today, and so I appreciate Dustin uh, volunteering, stepping up. I didn't have to draft anybody. He signed up freely, and so we appreciate him uh, doing that uh, this morning and helping a brother out so it's not the Eric Baker Show. All right, so thank you guys again for being here as we dive in and look specifically at a passage of Scripture that has given me great hope as a person and as a believer in Jesus Christ. I have much, much good news here today. And so as we've been prayed earlier, um, I, I just pray that God really works in the lives of our church. And so when you look at your Scripture today, if you'll flip with me back a little bit, a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 7, a new character is introduced into this narrative on the works of the Holy Spirit as told through Luke, the writer of this book, about how the Holy Spirit moved in a, a season of about 30 years as recorded in the book of Acts. And we meet this new character in Acts chapter 7, a man named Saul. And we focused, when we preached on that sermon, um, on Stephen. And now we're coming back and picking up and going to be talking about this man named Saul. We learn in Acts chapter 7 that that Saul is at the stoning of Stephen. If you remember, Stephen's just, he's a member of a church. He's a deacon. He's a, he's a servant. He's not a pastor. He's not a vocational minister. He is just a, a contributing piece of the body of believers. And he begins to proclaim. They get really ticked at this dude. And he gets really ticked back in righteous anger, preaches the gospel to these men and women, and they take him outside the city. They stone him to death. They remove their cloaks, and they hand them or lay them at a young man's feet named Saul. So this is when we begin to see this guy. If you look at 8, 3, chapter 8, verse 3, we see more about Saul. It says in 8, 1 there, and Saul approved of his execution. I told you last week, that's kind of like, Vader walking in in the first Star Wars. You don't really know who this guy is, but you know that this guy means business. And he goes on to tell us there in verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged um, men and women and committed them to prison. And so this guy is the enforcer for the Jewish belief system, the Jewish religion, as they are trying to eradicate this new way, the people who are proclaiming that Jesus is the way. They want it to be snuffed off the face of the earth. And so this ninja of Judaism here is going house to house and is ripping men and women from their homes, from their children, as they proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And he is having them in prison. This term ravaging there in verse 3 actually carries several connotations like outrage, scourging, torturing, like the dev devastation of a, a, a left in a town or a place after an army has been there. We get this word picture as well with this idea of ravaging that carries with it the idea of imagine taking uh, hungry lions and starving them, and then letting them loose within a, a, a pen of lambs. That's the picture that we get. 
of this man named Saul. As he is let loose into these cities, he is going from place to place, devouring his prey. The name Saul, if you were to look that up, has this connotation to it. It, it means to ask, to borrow, to beg. But it's also a very prestigious name within Judaism. If you remember way back in the Old Testament, the first king of the Israelites is a man named Saul. And the Bible tells us, I'm jealous of Saul, that he was a foot taller than all the other men, that he was extremely handsome. I mean, he was the picture-perfect, uh, the rock version of the king for these people, that they had long awaited, though God was, was not happy with this, he eventually gives them over to teach them a great and powerful lesson. But you get this prestigious idea, before Saul goes crazy, of this great and powerful man named Saul. And so you see this idea of, of this being placed as well into this very Saul. We learn from different areas within the scripture that, that this man named Saul was a Jew, but he was born in Tarsus. He was also, his parents were Roman citizens, so that allowed him to be a Roman citizen as well. At a very young age, his parents sent him from Tarsus to Jerusalem to learn from the, the upper crust of the academic world. He learned from the very best philosophers and teachers, rabbis and scholars. This man named Saul was extremely, extremely educated. He probably had all of the Old Testament memorized. He probably spoke several different languages. And we can get from little clues that Paul later writes in several of his letters that he had, he had reached the very top of his class, that he was the valley victorian of his class. And so this was a very, very educated man. Now, chapter 9, verse 1, we see more about this man named Saul. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that, he, that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So when we look at this now picture of this man named Saul, we get another image of him. It is the image of him breathing threats against the, the believers, against the Christians. Another word picture here that we kind of lose in English a lot of times, but in, in the Greek language, it's another picture of an animal. And this animal is the, imagining this idea of this raging bull, this um, husky, strong, um, you know, uh, just angry, angry, angry bull that is about to charge someone. You get that picture of him breathing heavily, that he's stomping his feet and scraping it against the ground, that he's just, wait, let me get them. Let me go get them. Like, just this, any of you been so angry that you've had this out-of-body experience? All right, this was Paul. This is this guy named Saul that is, that is extremely upset toward these believers. See, Saul, like we have in America, cultural Christianity, especially in the South. We also call that nominal Christianity. We talk a lot about that here at Mission because we believe that God has called us to the South, and in doing so, you fight against a culture where everybody kind of believes in Jesus. All right? There are also, if you get to know people of other religions in our town, they can be, you can be culturally Muslim, culturally Wiccan, 
culturally Baha, culturally Hindu, uh, ascribe to those beliefs and not really believe them. Okay? You believe them intellectually, but not in practice. Okay? This guy named Saul is not a nominal Jew. All right? This dude is the real deal. All right? He, he's not only a member, but he's a president. All right? Like he is really involved in the action of what it means. This is his beliefs. See, you can easily sway people that are nominal believers of anything. But people who are deeply ingrained in a belief system, whatever it might be, this guy illustrates that very, very, very much. This man is committed to his faith. He knows the Old Testament. He hates, in a believingly righteous way, Christians. See, you have to understand something. To the Jews, this was blasphemy for them to believe in Jesus. That means it was sinful. It was punishable by death. I, I, I think we could go even take it this far, that they believed that it was satanic for you to believe in Jesus. For you to come against Judaism. You are coming against Yahweh. You are coming against the Lord. And that's this man. See, Saul was a terrorist. He used violence, threats, and intimidation to cause fear and, 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 and hopes of removing or stifling the growth of Christianity, of people of the way. And if I can keep you silent about something, then I win. Isn't that what Satan has done in America for the most part? He has scared us enough using popularity, don't be made fun of, all of these sorts of things, to keep the believer silent, and in being silent, can suppress the truth and stop its growth. And so when we look at this idea, this guy named Saul that is this terrorist, he has declared as what we've seen in definitely recent years, what is known as jihad. It is a holy war. Paul, this guy named Saul, those are both his names. Um, he probably had tons of names, as most people did during this time. And so this, this guy named Saul declares holy, righteous war on who? On Christians. In so much that he's even able to go and get uh, special permission um, from the high priest to go and do this. They are in support of this. Why? Because, man, it is coming against our very belief, this satanic force, this dark cloud, this blasphemous group of people. And so, yes, let's, let's give this, these people, um, Saul and, and, and his helpers here, his disciples, some, some help to remove these people from our midst. So he travels to Damascus. Damascus is about 135 miles north of Jerusalem with papers in hand that declares that the, the, the you know, Judaism government allows me to come and to drag you away from everything that you know, take you back to Jerusalem, and to put you in prison. Then, this is what happens. Read with me. In Romans, see, there, see I did it again, right then. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. Romans 9 is going to come out today. I know it is. In Acts chapter 9, it says this, verses 3 through 9. 
Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Man, what a picture here. What a picture of sovereign grace within the life of this man. He is on his way to persecute. He is on his way to imprison. He is possibly on his way to murder. And yet, what do we see? God's kindness, God's love, God's electing mercy that has fallen upon this chief of sinners. This is the last thing on Paul's mind. All right? He's not driving his donkey, his camel, all right? His horse, whatever it is, he's, he's not driving that to, to Damascus, having you know read uh, you know the the latest Christian novel or book or listening to praise and worship music. Somebody hasn't slipped him a track. This is Jesus following Jesus. Disgusting is disgusting to him. It is wretched for him to do this. And yet, but God shows up in that perfect timing on that perfect day when he least expected it. And he snatches this man from the hell that he deserves forever transforming his life. In one complete moment, God, who is rich in mercy, seized Paul, this man, by by the power of a great Great affection. In this moment, the trajectory of this man's life completely changes. In one moment. As we can be reminded, as it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Us. I don't know about you, but that's, that's good news. That's, that's like immediately, as soon as I get done reading that, the frozen chosen should say, Amen! Because while we were yet sinners, that's King James for you, while we were in the midst of sinning, that's, that's the rapture I do believe in. Right there. That in, in the midst of sinning, God snatches us up, saves us converts us. See, the first thing that you need to understand about this story is that the gospel converts. Jesus converts people. He changes their lives. He moves in them. Is it interesting that the Bible tells us here that that Saul was blinded? That after God knocks him down, the first thing he does is blind him. But he blinds a man who believes that he can clearly see. See, he takes away something that the man is completely convinced that his way is the way. 
and yet God blinds him. He is a man that knows the Old Testament, a, a man that can quote it, has it memorized. He is the, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He is the Hebrew of Hebrews, and yet this man is now made blind. He thought he was a, on the straight and narrow. He thought his good works pleased God, and yet is knocked to the ground, made blind, and is placed into a humble, humble state. And this is the beauty of the gospel. See, we can't come to Jesus until we come to him in a humbled state, into a, a, a place of great humility and, and decreasing. A, an understanding of who I am compared to his greatness makes me very, very small. Later on in the book of Acts, um, this man named Saul kind of scratches that name. Let's, let's all say he's got, he's got a rap. All right, he's, he's got some bad stuff about him, and it's true. And, and starts going probably with his, I, I can't remember, I think it's his Greek name or his Hebrew name. Um, it's one or the other. And that name is where we have come familiar with this man named Paul. It's interesting that once you study the name Paul, um, how different it is than the prestige that comes with the name of Saul. The word Paul means small. It means humble. So this guy who is, who is big and mighty and great and powerful, he is looked well upon, goes and is forever known from that moment and throughout Christian history and will probably be in all of eternity, not known as Saul the destroyer, but Paul the humble. Paul the small. It's a powerful, powerful image here that we see this. Because in view of the gospel, in view of Jesus, we truly realize how small that we are. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to encourage you in something. There is great joy in realizing your smallness. There's great happiness. There's great security in realizing that we can be small and yet are great in the person and work of Jesus Paul will later write to the church at Ephesus in this 2.8. Ephesus, excuse me, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one can boast. Man, you know... The reality of salvation and sovereign grace in all of our lives, the, the understanding of Romans 9 where it says, I will bless whom I will bless, I will show mercy whom I will show mercy, should not cause us to run, but should cause us to throw our hands in the air at the mercy of God in the realization that I have no idea why I'm standing before you today professing Jesus because there were a lot better candidates out there. Somebody was to ask me, man, why did Jesus save you? My response is, I have no idea. I have no idea. None. But he has. And as much as I've been tempted to drift away from it, for some reason his grace tractor beam continues to, to draw me back to himself. That in, in so much that it consumes my very life. I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep 
thinking about it all of the time that this Jesus would show such grace and mercy on a guy like me. See, church, we have nothing to boast about except for Jesus. Our salvation was not based on a completion or a, a, com, a pleaded album of our greatest words or, or a formulated prayer that you, you said the words just right that unlocked the key up to your heart? No. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus saved you in the same way that he has saved this man named Saul. It wasn't because you got your life together. You finally got it right. Now, I want you to know, even if you thought, well, I became softened or a friend invited me um, to the church or um, a friend began to share with me the gospel, and that's all part of your story. It's not to discredit your story, but I want you to know who was behind every one of those formulated things. It was Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit that orchestrated every one of those things in your life. You were saved, as Paul was saved, by the mighty working of God's grace in your life and my life. See, I, I am thankful today that I can crack open a Bible and I can read about this guy. Because his story is very similar to my story. I didn't grow up wild and rebellious. I grew up religious. And see, the scariest thing within the church, I believe, is that you can have good deeds and have a rotten heart. Let's all face it, our temptation, even at Mission Church, is to just fall into the groove, is to, to kind of get here and to do certain things, not because we're passionate about Jesus, not because we're passionate about our church, but because this is what we do. Now I want you to know that God is not after what you do as much as God is after your heart. See, one of the worst things within Christendom, especially in the West, is religious hypocrisy. It is the outward doing of Christian or moral things and having a heart that is not in it for Jesus. And man, we can all struggle with those things. See, I, I, I'm convinced that, and you can argue with me on this, is that I, I'm convinced that the sin of, the, of religion the sin of nominal Christianity, the sin of, of moralism, the sin of being a religious kid like I was and a religious teenager like I was, believing that my righteous deeds in some way made God impressed with me. And then in some way, if I did enough of them, that God would eventually save me. And then I would know this happiness and know this joy and all these sorts of things. But I, I'm convinced that this is the greatest scheme of the enemy because it not only plagues a lot of people before they come to Jesus, but I think it is the, the leech of sin that attaches itself to those of us who have been saved. Think about this. And if you're, if you're an alcoholic, and we have people in our church who are former alcoholics because the grace of Jesus in their lives has radically changed them. But think about this. If you're an alcoholic today, you can go to a, a, a treatment program somewhere that is completely secular, that is completely void of Jesus. And you know what can happen? You can get off of alcohol. 
You can go to one of those places and get help and, and, and totally stop smoking, start, stop drinking, stop doing meth, stop Norton Drano, whatever it is that you do, you can go to these places, get medical help or treatment, and stop doing them. And Jesus essentially be void of that process. You make, make the list, but tell me one place where you can go and, and, and see freedom from religion. You can't find it out there. And yet it, it permeates our very lives and existence. See, religion, ladies and gentlemen, does not save. Religion kills. If, if you name any other religion out there that is trying to work them way, their way to heaven, historically, they kill people. The meanest people in the world are religious people. They're religious people. Typically, the meanest people in our congregations are religious people. See, they're, they're null and void of, of seeing that all things work for the glory of God and for the goodness of, of His glory and for the goodness of His people and the goodness of the city in which He is resting in. But we must fight this idea of religion. Only Jesus can Save. You need to know that today. You need to know it. Man, I, confessionally, I'm just like you, man. There, there are times where um, all of that comes back to me. And there are frustrations that swell up in me as your pastor, but more importantly, as your brother in Christ. And there, there are times where I get so frustrated with different things that I'm like, man, God, are, are, like, have you really saved me? Because based on my performance or based on what's happening to me currently, you don't do this to your kids. You wouldn't allow this to happen. I mean, anybody else do that stuff? Uh, if you were really good, you wouldn't let this stuff happen. You wouldn't be taking me through this. See, all of that is the whispers of sin, Satan, and death itself. Trying to convince me once again that religion will save. Religion only kills Jesus saves. The second thing that we can see from this powerful piece of Scripture is, is this. Look in verse, uh, let's go verse 4. 9, 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you have your own Bible, you need to underline that passage of Scripture. Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Me. What's interesting about that is, who is Saul persecuting? The church. He's going after the church. He's going after followers of Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus say to this guy? What does he say to Paul? Man, why are you persecuting me? He even goes on further there in verse 5. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting interesting connection there that jesus has see a lot of people get upset at me or push back against me because i'm pro-church like i'm a church guy the church has lots of blemishes man i love mission church i love this place not meaning this place as far as this building i love you as the pastor or one of your pastors 
we got lots of problems. The church in America has lots of problems. The church in the world has lots of issues. And though she has many blemishes, let us not stop loving her in spite of her blemishes. Because Jesus didn't. He didn't stop loving her. He died for her. The church. Who's he coming back for? The church. Jesus is pro-church. He, he equates church to his very body, to himself. You can't have Jesus without the church. This is what Jesus is all about. The next thing that we see is that the gospel creates, or in these truths that we can see, is that the gospel creates Christ-centered community, or other known as the church. This is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. You can't have Jesus and be separated from the local church. Further on, we see this. We meet another character named Ananias, don't we? Let's look at Ananias, um, chapter 9, verses 10 and uh, so on. It says this. Now, with a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, the Lord said to him, in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. See, immediately after Saul's conversion, what does God do? He sends a man to his life. He sends a believer into his life. The man Saul is blind. He is being led around by who? Others. God is going to use an instrument of another believer in this guy named Saul's life to forever change Saul and to make the scales through the power of the Holy Spirit and through his prayer of obedience, those scales later on in that chapter fall off of Saul's eyes. God uses another person. Ananias' name means God is gracious in verse 17 down here at the very bottom again remember he's talking to this guy named Saul that a few hours ago was on his way to imprison or to murder and yet Ananias in verse 17 looks at Saul in the first time meeting him and calls him what brother see the church is a family the church is to be together as a family, to live and to dwell as a family. If you skip on over to verse 26, I think this is really interesting. Excuse me, verse 25 and 26. It says this, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Saul doesn't escape without who? The disciples, the church. Isn't it interesting, Paul, we don't, I don't know how, what is the time between his conversion and with Ananias and this time that he's lowered down, but what does he call the people that are with Saul? His disciples. See, first you're converted, then you're placed within the church and you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. And this guy, new Christian, doesn't have it all together yet. And what does he already have? Disciples. And if not for those disciples following after him, learning about Jesus from the new convert, then he's not set free in this moment. What does God use? Couldn't God just like, whoo, and 
transport him somewhere else? Yes, but what does he do? He doesn't do that. He uses people. He uses a community of believers. See, the gospel converts, but the gospel creates Christ-centered community. See, some of you have friends, but that doesn't mean that you have Christ-centered community. There's a great difference. We like to use this terminology. It's called koinonia. It's the Greek word equivalent to the term fellowship. We're really good at fellowshipping, okay? But that's not biblical fellowship. Hanging out, eating, cooking out, going to a party, going to the gym, you know, traveling on vacation with people, that's called friendship, all right? Christ-centered community, there is a sharpening there. It, it, it can involve those things, but if, if it's not centered around a discussion about the person and the work of Jesus, it's just a potluck. It's just a meal. It's just hanging out. You can't call that biblical community because at the center of biblical community is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's powerful. When when Saul runs from there and he's led down, I like to look at pictures, this grown man in a basket, all right? Let's hope it was like Londonburger or Lindenburger, whatever that is, a real good basket. So they let him down there to the very bottom here. And, and where does he go? He's like, uh, let's, let's go to Jerusalem. That's where some other disciples are. That's where some other believers are. That's where the apostles are. And so what do they do? They go to Jerusalem, travel 135 miles south now to Jerusalem. He shows up on the scene. He's like, hey, I'm Saul. I'm here. I'm a converted believer. What, what does the Bible tell us there in verse 26 through 30? They're scared to death. This is a bad man. Imagine just for a moment that you were to wake up tomorrow, like or we could go back in time, like five or six years ago, and we were to wake up, and Fox News and CNN actually agree on something that has happened in the world, and we wake up, and we look at the news, and, it, and it's Osama bin Laden. And Osama bin Laden has sent in a video, and it is a video of him turning himself in to the United States of Authority, and he looks at the camera, and he said, I had to turn myself in because I now follow Jesus. you believe it? If you study some mass murderers within our own country, several of them that I could name supposedly became believers before they were either killed or put into the electric chair or however they took their lives, executed. Isn't it hard to believe that? Believe Ted Bundy's a follower of Jesus? You're going to spin your you know, I, I think even Jeffrey Dahmer, check my facts on that, I may be wrong, but, uh, but just imagine being in heaven with these, these gruesome, wretched of men. Imagine us waking up tomorrow and on Fox News, CNN, whatever you listen to, and all of a sudden it is, it is all of ISIS. And they throw their guns on the ground, they lift their hands up in the air, and they're like walking toward the United States and other forces who are taking care of ISIS. And they're like, hey, we, we give up. We're waving the white flag here. Jesus is Lord. They've just spent the last several, several years killing thousands of believers. And all of a sudden, they're putting down their, their swords, they're putting down their weapons, and they're declaring to the world that Jesus is Lord. That is what's taking place within this very man. And he steps into the scene in Jerusalem. He's like, hey, I love Jesus. 
and they're scared. Well, wouldn't you be? Yes. Yet what does God do? Man, this Barnabas guy. We learned about him a few months ago. We studied in the book of Acts. Barnabas becomes a believer, and what does he do? God lays it upon his heart to go sell a piece of land. He sells that land, and he gives all of the proceeds and lays it down at the apostles' feet. They also call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And again, we see this guy named Barnabas show up on the scene. I mean, he's stealthy. He kind of pops in and does something for the Lord. And he shows up all of a sudden, Barnabas, ah! I mean, he steps onto the scene here. And he's talking to disciples, he's talking to the apostles, and, and what does this son of encouragement do? Dude, he's legit. This guy has seen Jesus. And you know what the fruit of him seeing Jesus was? Don't miss this. Proclamation. This man goes out and starts preaching about the very one whom he came to destroy. See, ladies and gentlemen, it takes the church. It takes the church. And I'm going to beat this till I die. But it's about Jesus. And Jesus is about the church. And so you need to be about the local church. Why? Because Jesus is. The fruit of conversion is being a part of the local church. The fruit of conversion is, is, is proclamation. Jesus loves the church. It's like the illustration that I've used. I don't know how many times I'll continue to use it. It's like you coming to me saying, Pastor Eric, I love you. Me and my wife, we love you. You're absolutely phenomenal. You're the best preacher. You're so good looking. You're tall, dark, handsome, sunburnt, whatever you want to call it. You are an mate. You're funny. I believe I am, but I'm not. All right. All these things, you say all of those things to me, but you say, man, can you come over for dinner? We would love to have you over for dinner, but, but not your wife. Laura, she's a skank, and she can't come. We hate her. All right, now, I say that because it would probably be reversed. You love my wife, and you hate me. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Now we finally get somebody to talk in this, class, in this room. It's amazing. Okay? But that, that's the picture here. It, it, if you love Jesus, but are not loving and engaged and deeply entwined in the local church, you are telling Jesus that he is awesome, but that his bride is disgusting, and I don't want to have anything to do with her. And that's not Jesus. Jesus is all about us, the church, and our flaws. See, this is how many people, especially in the South, are living their lives. They would never say it. You never say, man, the church is a skank. But you would live that way. You would treat her that way. I want you to get this. Please hear me. Some of you here today are claiming to believe and to be followers of Jesus. You are claiming that Jesus saved you at some point in your life. In the timeline of your existence, you are claiming that Jesus has saved you. And yet, you are not committed to a local church. Understand this. Church attendance is not the same as commitment. There's a major difference there. I want you to know, if that's you here today, 
and, it, and you're here and, and you're in this room, you're in sin. You need to repent and come to Jesus. Because Jesus is all about his church. In the words of J.D. Greer, Pastor J.D. Greer, love him, Summit Church, there's no separation between your love for Jesus and your commitment to the local church. Let me read a, a note so I make sure that I get this clearly from me. This, in the South, Bowling Green is, is filled with people who say they love Jesus, but are on the fringes of the local church. You know, if all the planets are in line, then we might show up on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, uh, you know, uh, we may be in and out of a, a small group. They, they're committed enough to make the leadership go, oh, I don't know, are they, are they a part of us? Or are they, they not a part of us? Brothers and sisters, you will not find any biblical support for this type of fair weather commitment to the local church. I love you. But as one of your pastors, or you're sitting under this teaching, it, it, if, if you're doing this, you're in sin. You need to turn and to follow after Jesus. You need to turn and commit yourself to the local church, because Jesus is committed to it. He's going to bless your life. Are there going to be some frustrating things? Yes, there are going to be some difficult things. Is it going to be about your time? Is it going to take up some of your time? Yes. Are there going to be frustrating things? Yes. All of those things. And yet God is using all of those things to sanctify our lives because when Jesus converts us, he also places us within a Christ-centered community for our good and ultimately for his glory. See, Mission Church, in the next several months, we're going to be making some major steps forward into a certain area into our city. In this, we're going to be reaching some, a lot of young adults, a lot of young families, a, lo a lot of seniors as well. We're going to be reaching people who live in multi-million dollar houses and people who live in apartments. We're going to be speaking and ministering to people who speak English, and we're going to be speaking to a lot of people that do not speak English at all. And it's going to take Jesus, it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to take you stepping up. And if I, I love you, and this it would hurt me personally, okay? But man, if you don't love this place, if you don't love Mission Church, if you can't commit to this place and to this leadership and to this body of believers, by all means, with all of the love in my very heart, and go be obedient and be in a place where you can. Because you're in sin if you're not. This is the power. It's, it's the beauty of knowing Jesus that I don't have to, I get to. And Jesus places me in this thing because following Jesus is, is very personal, but it is never private. He does it within community. It is always done in community. Saul goes from wanting to exterminate the church like a cockroach to being able to, to completely depend on these people. The last thing is this. Conversion... The gospel always creates calling. Let's look at this. Verse, chapter 9, verse 15 and 16 says this. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of 
my name. Skip on down to verse 20. And immediately, this is speaking of Saul, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. If you keep reading and you flip on over to verse 27, it says this, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. What is the response of conversion? What is the response of being in a Christ-centered community? The, the response is that God is going to place a specific calling upon our lives. He gives all of us some responsibility. That is proclamation. And that's what we see here taking place in this man's life. The gospel converts. The gospel places you into a Christ-centered community. And the gospel will always show its fruit in you using your lips, your mouth, in the proclamation of the gospel to the life of others. And who is at the center of all of this? Jesus. Who is orchestrating all of this? Jesus. Who is the center of these people's lives? Jesus. Who are these people being willing to be ripped in half, thrown to lions, burned at the stake, crucified upside down? Why? Because of Jesus. And as hard as it is, I mean, right here before this dude ever starts, he tells Ananias, this guy is going to suffer ridiculously. For what? For the cause of Jesus, for the proclamation of Jesus, for the salvation of others in Jesus. If you haven't got a picture yet about this church and what we're all about, it is all about Jesus. All of these things that takes place is courtesy of Jesus and his sovereign grace and his work upon the cross and in the resurrection. It is all about Jesus. If your life planter doesn't reflect the life of Jesus, repent Turn, follow after Jesus, place your faith not in your own, but in your faith whose faith is perfect and his name is Jesus. If I haven't said Jesus enough, Jesus, 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 just to make sure it is all about Jesus. And don't get saved from religion and backpedal thinking your religion is going to keep you saved because it won't. Only Jesus will. Only Jesus can sustain you. Only Jesus will save you. Only Jesus will sanctify your life. And what is the response of this? Man, I love this. Verse 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Underline this. It multiplied. It multiplied. That's why here at Mission Church we say, man, we're going to worship Jesus. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. We're going to worship something. And God says to attribute all worth-ship that he is most worthy is the person and work of Jesus. So we have declared from our very birth that we are going to be a place that worship Jesus, not only on Sunday mornings, but in all of life. Second to that is Jesus says that you are to go and make disciples, not simply converts, not simply people who can repeat a prayer or get dunked in the water, but people who are actively transformed by Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And then thirdly is this, is that a church should be a multiplying place where more people are worshiping Jesus. 
where more people are being discipled and where more churches are being planted in the name of Jesus. And that's what happens in Acts. And I pray to God sometime before I leave this world that I get to see it and to be a part of it in my own life, in our lives as Mission Church. Man, may we rejoice today because Saul's story is our story. And that same Jesus that was at work then is the same Jesus that is at work today. You can never be too far from God that he can't save you. That he can't. He can't do anything too bad that he can't redeem. And man, our, our hope and our prayer is that we would become and be a congregation where the most wretched of people and sinners can come and be saved by Jesus. If you would, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this time together. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Jesus, that you have been exalted.